Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 276 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I'm Really, 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 really excited about today's episode with Jason C. Poole. Jason is a friend of mine. He is a student of mine. Um, many, if not most, or all of my students become friends. Uh, Jason is a truly special person to me. Um, he is like a brother to me. We share so much in the way that our brains work. Hey, let me give you a little uh, bio for him because I'm going to start doing this now, and then I don't do it for a little while, and then I'm going to do it again. I'm just really backed up in terms of essays that have essays, interviews that have already been recorded. So I'm kind of changing it on the fly here. But Jason Craig Poole is a word nerd who wants to play in all of the literary sandboxes, especially poetry, creative nonfiction, and fiction. After years of feeling like he was stuck, he studied how his mind works and began assembling a writer's toolbox. Thanks to his tools, he's not stuck anymore, but he still doesn't know how to operate a power saw. So we are talking today about this incredible book by Oliver Berkman, which I have mentioned on the show before. It's called 4,000 Weeks. Um, Truly an amazing book. And this is an outrageously fun and delicious conversation that Jason and I have. We're not talking about, (laughs) I think we forget to talk about writing, honestly, Uh, but everything we say is directly applicable to you and your writing life. And you will get a chance to see how his brain works. Um, Why is that relevant to you right now? Because right now, if you go to rachelherron.com slash frolic, you can join the 15-day frolic, which happens in February. Uh, It is 15 days of play, writing and playing together with me and Jason and Mona McDermott. Um, It's super cheap for what it is. I I did the math and it's like $50 more than um, I charge for spending a half hour with me on a coaching call if I look at your words. So uh, 15 days, three Zoom meetings, Slack channel, just go to rachelherron.com slash frolic. Um, Thus endeth the plug for that. But uh, after you hear Jason, I think you're going to want to join us for those, uh, that fun and games and bringing your writing back to life and back to fun and back to play. So there's that. What else has been going on around here before we get into the interview? Um, I have made the, I get a little nervous saying it still, I have made the actual decision to self-publish the book formerly known as Replenish, now known as Stay. Who knows if it will stay that title, but I think it might. Um, and I have contracted an editor and I have a deadline. And the deadline is at this point, the end of January, I would like to get it off my desk earlier. And the editor might have time to look at it earlier, depending on whether a trip of hers goes or not, depending on COVID, Omicron, et cetera. Uh, so I might be able to get it off my desk sooner than the end of January. That would be great. Um, and I'm really excited because spending that money, putting that money on a book, means that you are taking it seriously. And this is the developmental edit. Um, This is an excellent editor with a ton of experience, uh, including in memoir. And I am very excited to work with her. And because I am very frank and open and honest with all y'all, and I don't think I said this last week, perhaps I did, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, I considered for a wild moment saving the money 
and just paying for copy edits and a proofreader. Because I understand story structure, I teach story structure, et cetera. And then I came to my senses. This woman will help me make my book into the strongest form it can be. We cannot see uh, what we are doing wrong. And I'm really honestly not sure about whether this kind of ambitious structure I'm trying to put on it, uh, this framing device I'm using for it uh, is working because it is a little bit, you'll understand when the book comes out, uh, but it is a self-indulgent framing device involving the use of journals, heavily edited journals, people, nobody wants to read your journal. Um, but yeah, some, some journal stuff is in there tying some pieces together and I need help understanding whether it works or not. And if it doesn't, I need some suggestions on what I could do to perhaps make it work. I'm feeling really confident about it right now. I think it's great. The second I send it to her when it is done, I will 100% for sure know it is the worst piece of crap that has ever been written. And neither of those two things are true. It's not the best book I've ever written right now. And it's also not the worst book I've ever written right now. It is somewhere in the middle and I need help. So uh, yeah, she is now contracted and I am excited about that. I'm also just really excited because in my head, I because I hadn't decided whether to give this to my agent and um, if she had decided to take it out and say, say my agent loved it and she wanted me to do revisions, which she always does. That's another six to eight months of working with her on that. And then she would take it out. That could take up to six months, six to eight months for an editor to buy the book. We're looking at a year there. If an editor bought the book, which um, is never guarantee, even with an agent. And then after an editor would have bought it, it would have been at least 12 to 18 months, more usually closer to 18 months after it's purchased that it comes out after they do the edits and all the copy edits, proofing, all that stuff. So we're looking at about two and a half years from now for this book that I'm currently loving to get into readers' hands. And I have decided to circumnavigate a lot of that um, to get around a lot of that time. And it's just going to be out there and I'm very excited. So that is making me work on it in a really excited fashion. Um, let's see what else is going on. Uh, I just decided this right this very second, but there will not be a show next week because that would mean I would have to put it together right now with the intro. And I don't want to, because I'm going on vacation. I am taking a week off and we're going down to the South of the South Island uh, to romp around a little bit in Dunedin and Queenstown and take some time off for the first time all year. Uh, I guess first time since we went to Grand Canyon in 2019, this will be our first vacation. First time not working. And I'm really looking forward to the seven days off. So there will not be an episode next week, right before the new year, but there will be one right after that. And I usually talk about money in the first episode of the new year. And I am sure I will continue to do so. Although again, I have put literally no thought into this so far. Um, I know that I have made, I think I have made as much as I made last year uh, and more. So yay writing, yay money, yay enough to live on. Uh, so that is wonderful. All right. I'm going to stop talking now because this show with Jason is so much fun. Please enjoy it. Um, it's going to make you want to read the book. I know it is. Uh, but we talk a lot about what we learned from this book, 4,000 weeks. Um, and it's an open, honest, heartfelt, really beautiful conversation with my amazing friend, Jason. So please uh, enjoy that, my friends. And if you are interested in the class, it's rachelherron.com slash frolic. You can always go check that out. All right. We will talk to you soon. 
Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All of the holiday feelings sent to you. Um, please try to sneak in a little bit of writing around the relatives or around uh, the quiet time of year that you are enjoying if you're, if you're doing it that way, which a lot of people are. Um, and I will talk to you soon, my friends. Okay. Bye. Okay. Well, I could not be more pleased to say hello to my friend, Jason. Hello, Jason. Hi, Rachel. Will you please give us your full name and your pronouns? Sure. I am Jason Craig Poole and my pronouns are he, him. I am so excited to talk to you. This is not a normal <laughs> episode, um, which I really like because we are not normal people. And amen. Amen. <laughs> right. So let's talk real briefly about what we're doing and then we're going to jump into it. Um, we are going to talk about a book called 4,000 Weeks, um, which honestly I keep calling 4,000 Days, which is um, not good. <laughs> right. It's already short enough. <laughs> So 4,000 Weeks is by Oliver Berkman. Did you recommend this book to me or did I come up with this on my own? Because I know I, you already loved him, but are you the person who pushed it into my hands? I think I did. I think I sent I think I think yeah. sent you a Kindle version of it the minute I started reading it because it That's screamed right, Rachel. Oh my God. You even you sent it to me as a gift because you tend to do that, you darling boy. Um, <laughs> it was life changing. I, I wrote this in my latest pa Patreon essay about like the hard times of being on the road. Um, but we were in Mount Monganui and we had just gone to the hot springs and I had my Kindle and I decided to start the book and I didn't, we were out under the stars surrounded by people reading our Kindles in the hot tubs and everybody was looking at us like we were <laughs> just out of our minds. And, um, and this book changed my life as I started to read it. Can I'm you, I'm with you. So it's basically, it's, it's time management for mortals, I think is the subtitle, right? Right. What can take, tell me about um, what has been your past relationship with time management? So um, one of the things that I loved in early conversations with you was that you are a productivity geek too, oh, and okay. have yes. all the books, right? I've done everything, every tool. Right. Me too. Me too. Although I never, I haven't really, um, taken the big plunge into bullet journaling, but I've come close. I've come close, my own version of it. So um, I had seen the the book, I think it was on Facebook, Guardian had, the Guardian had posted um, the promo for it because it was just coming out. And I read Oliver's, uh, a sample chapter of it. And I thought, this isn't about time management. I mean, he's a productivity yeah. geek. That was his job, which is really yeah. cool. But um, really, this is about recognizing we are really limited. And so it's, not so much time management in terms of like hacks, but it's more like recognizing that we're mortal and then relaxing into that. And I thought this is philosophy and time geek stuff all rolled into one. It's philosophy and Zen Buddhism and recovery. Yeah. And I feel like I am in recovery from a productivity geek seat. However, I will say that I don't think I'm ever going to lose some of my tools, like I, I'll hold up for people watching. Like I, I bujo, I'm a bullet <laughs> journaler. Um, but just because I'm so severely ADHD that if I don't write it down and set two alarms around it, it won't happen. Um, and I'm I just know that that's, that's my hack. Are you ADHD too? I'm, I have never been officially diagnosed, but I, I would put money on it. Yeah. Basically when you put money on it, I have always, I, I, I would have put money on you, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> we like to do all, I love the, all, the, all things. the things. 
all the things <laughs> all the time and they're all yeah. bright and shiny. So let's talk about the 4,000 weeks. He got that number um, that if you live to about 80 ish, about is 80, kind of average, yeah. average is about 4,100 weeks that you have. And I loved how he asked friends like, how many weeks do you think we have off the top of your head? And one person said 310,000, you know, no, right. You know, right. Which is like all of human existence. All yeah. of human existence is about 300,000 weeks. Um, I, did you do any math around this? I did this before we called, I have spent 2548 of my weeks. I did my, my grandmother, um, when we were adopting, um, when we were, had just adopted our son, I had, a. um, I, I did a, a new dad diary and I calculated his age for the for the diary in the yes. beginning. So I've used an age calculator. And I think my grandmother has right now, she's 94. I can't remember. She was like, oh, I'm almost at 95,000 weeks. I'm great. I'm, I'm, I could go at any time. And I thought, well, that's kind of... <laughs> I'm all about recognizing our own mortality, but I wouldn't say you're ready to go. Not ready to go. And I was doing that too. I'm like, I've spent 1,400 of my 4,000. No, wait, I've spent 2,500 of my 4,000-ish weeks. But then I did some more math and I don't really count myself as a fully formed human being until I was about 25. I was an idiot and I didn't know how. I didn't know what I wanted. Right. I didn't know how to live. That was about 1,300 weeks. So for only 17, 728 weeks, I've been consciously trying to live and write. Um, I've been published for 624 of those weeks. I did math for you because your son is four, right? Right. You've been a dad for only 208 weeks. Which feels like it should be 3,610 <laughs> weeks. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, have you learned more in those mere 200 weeks than you ever have in your whole life? It's so when Berkman goes into it and he talks about how time bends yeah. and how it speeds up as you get older and like months pass in the matter of minutes, it feels like, and kind of the cruel, the cruelty of that. Um, yes, time got really, really slow the minute my son came into our world. And also it moves really quickly. It's a really strange, it's like holding the dichotomy in you know both hands all the time. So let's jump into that conversation then. And I would actually, before we jump into that conversation, I would actually like people, I would like to invite people just to be here and, and be present with whatever their body is doing. Because I know that when we talk about the concept of the fact that we may not live forever and do all the things people get very uncomfortable. I get right. very uncomfortable and that's fine. We learn to be with this kind of discomfort. Um, so what I wanted to mention was that I, I really loved how he talked about how time just used to be life. And then we separated time from life when we were trying to um, use it to the best of our ability and uh, become little factories of productivity instead of being time. People just used to be time. How did you feel exactly. about Exactly. So I have a story for you about that. Oh, please. Part of my, um, one of the great joys of my life has been to go to the island of Molokai, yes. <clears throat> which is in Hawaii. And um, I hang out on the East End, which is essentially deserted. There are probably maybe 10 people that live in this valley year round. And when I'm there, um, um, Berkman talks about it in terms of medieval farmers. And, and he mm -hmm. says that medieval farmers kind of lived in, in the rhythm of, of how of the workflow and they didn't really need to measure time. They did, they did as they needed, which is how we live in the valley. I don't wear a watch. Um, and we get things done. Like you can really dedicate yourself to a project for as long as it needs to take. Um, my pops, um, 
would say to me, one day he said to me, I want you to build a goat house. And I said, okay, I was, I had lived in New York for 23 years. So I thought, you know, I don't really know goat houses. And is this something we could get at a Home Depot or like, can, how does this work? Can you work? buy it in one? Can I choose the size? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> does Amazon come here? How does this work? And he said, um, well, there's lumber down at the bottom of the hill um, from the old pig pen. So you need to go extricate the, um, the lumber from the muck and then to drag it up to the top of the hill because the goats need a house. And I said to him, well, when does this need to be done? And he said, today. And I thought, there is no way in the world that I'm going to be able to, I've never built a, I've never no built a, a doll house, let alone a house for living goats. What am I, I supposed to do? even give myself a day. Like it would take me more than a day just to learn what a goat house might look like. Like I would go down right? that rabbit hole of research. Yeah. Right. And so I said to him, so what am I supposed to do? He said, you'll figure it out. So I did. And um, I, I managed to drag this lumber out of this old pig pen that had collapsed to the top of a hill and constructed something. And I thought for sure it was going to be, I don't know, a couple days worth of work. And I was done really early in the afternoon because I was allowed to focus solely on one task. And even though I had to totally um, make it up in my head, he, he says MacGyver it, like I had to, to figure it all out on my own. Um, I built a goat house before before the sun went down. It was probably by lunch that I got that I got it up and and we got the corrugated tin roof on the top. So um, there we live very much like the medieval farmers would have, and we, you kind of you're able to to get into the flow state, the deep time, right? Yeah. And then he says, Berkman says it's it's it doesn't work in today's society because we have to interact with other people. And the minute that you interact with other people, you have to have some kind of measurable or quantifiable scale. So and that blew my mind right there. Like, right. That, and that's why church bells basically were started yeah. was to give people a way to come together and to know when to do what. Yeah. That was a big, like, Oh yeah. If, if I don't have to interact, which we don't in a Valley of 10 people, I can do what I need to do as I need to do it for as long as it takes. But yeah, if we expect to, to, to interact with other people, we need to be able to, to work together. I also really liked what he said about, um, in, in terms of this deep time that I keep thinking about, like the, the, the peasant who has the cows doesn't try to, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but I can't, doesn't try to milk a hundred cows today for the next hundred days to get it, you know, right. to get it, get it over with. No, the cows are going to be there again tomorrow and you're going to have right. to do all of this tomorrow. So just, live in time. Have you ever had the experience of living in, um, I'm trying, I'm looking at my notes, see if I can find where I wrote down about deep time, because I think I did. Um, have you had that experience of living in deep time in other places when you're not in Molokai? Um, here is, here's what, uh, what he says about it. Deep time is that sense of timeless time, which depends on forgetting the abstract yardstick and plunging back into the vividness of reality instead. Right. First of all, how many notes did you take in the book? Like a hundred thousand. A hundred thousand. I'm surprised I didn't run out of rooms to room to take highlights. And then today I moved those highlights into. I was just going to put them into a little like you know um, notepad document. It's four miles long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had underlined everything with a pen when I went through oh, it before. You were and in today, hard copy. yeah. I well. Yes, and I have it on Kindle and audio because I, yes. I love this so much. But um, 
I had it all underlined and then today I went through and I used, no lie, I have them right here to prove it, three highlighters to go through oh. it. And it's like every line of the book is oh. highlighted. So yes. um, yeah, it's, yeah. The notes are extensive on something <laughs> like this. This is the book that I probably could read every month for the next year, like get 12 yes. copies of it. And, and it would be highlighted in different places depending on where I'm at. I feel like I, I read everything and then forgot everything, but I think what you and I might love most about it is, and I'm going to come back to my question, but um, is that it's written by us for us. Like Oliver Berkman yeah. is us. He is the one trying to do everything and have all the experiences and manage time and finally get a handle on doing all of the things we want to do in a day, plus be a good human. Um, he's he And he wrote this for us. So oh, yeah. um, the question was, have you experienced deep, deep time not in Molokai? Yes. When my son was first born, mm. because an infant requires you to step out of everything else and yeah. so, uh, focus solely on them. We had the, um, he was born in California and um, we weren't able to leave the state for a month mm -hmm. um, because the, to, tr to transfer a child from one state to another is a long oh, and so tedious didn't process. didn't even have like family coming over, no. friends. Yeah. We lived in hotels and um, it was a really intense period of we woke when he woke up and we slept whenever we could grab a moment to sleep. And most of the time we forgot to eat yet somehow still gained a lot of weight. I don't remember how that happened, but yeah, and yeah. That, was, that was probably <laughs> the only time I've ever experienced that. Or if I was in deep rehearsals for a show like tech week of a show um, yeah. was a deep time moment for sure. How about you? I, Sometimes I, I, I feel like I have very little experience with this deep time, honestly. And it's something I want to touch more. Um, it annoyingly for a person who really just wants to be in her chair inside most of my deep moments occur outside, which is just bullshit, but, um, <laughs> stupid outside. But I, I feel it sometimes when I swim, um, when I just am doing laps and I, I, I have these waterproof headphones, um, that I could just put music in. I can't do anything else. And I'm not a very good swimmer. So I have to kind of keep my mind on my body and there's nowhere else for my mind to wander because um, in terms of the Clifton strengths, futuristic is a very strong high tendency for me. So I never think about the past. I never live in the presence and I am always in the future planning something usually out of a base of anxiety. And when I'm swimming, I don't have that, um, Oh, I will tell you something that I started to do in New Zealand because we really came to New Zealand with a hope that we could um, have more balance. And I know balance is a myth, um, but you know the the whole idea of work life balance. And New Zealanders work from like nine ish. They take a break around eleven. They take lunch. They take another break around two, and then they're done by four or four thirty. And then they go Pacific, be with their families. Yeah. All yes, it's, it's a Southern Pacific thing. It's a Pacific thing. Um, stores close at five, five thirty. They're not open on the weekends. Um, so when we were in Russell, when we were trapped in Russell on lockdown on that beautiful beach house, every single night I would go out with a cup of tea and I would leave my phone indoors. Um, mm. which for me is very hard to do because I'm I feel like those buckets of time as they pass me by, if I'm not doing something useful with them, um, then, then I'm wasting my life. And that's one of the things that this book has changed for me, but I would just go outside with the tea and I would watch the clouds and I have continued that. And I don't do that every day, but I probably do it more days than I don't. 
I've done it for like the last two or three days in a row. I go out here to our porch where we can see the Harbor and I just have one cup of tea. And for the amount of time that it takes me to drink a cup of tea from hot to cold and done, I just watch the sky and I watch the water and I watch the boats and I watch the cars and I watch the trees and the birds. And I don't, and it's, it's so nice. I lose, I just, it, it's everything I need. Do you have any pockets in your life like that? You have a kid, so I'm going to go with, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. If I'm, yes. Yes, he goes to school, so um, mm. I have my mornings free, which are usually writing times. Yeah. And um, when I, I would tell you that when I sit down to write, oftentimes I will read um, something first. I'll go to a, a poetry collection to yeah. to let my brain dance a little bit, and I sit down with the intention that I'm going to um, to immerse myself in language and allow my brain to start to to play with the 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 music of the language. But what ends up happening is that I really let my brain go and play with the music of it. So that is a time that I will go away and live in that moment with that piece of literature that I'm reading and can, um, can have fun with that. So it's not, it's not the same as being like on Molokai. That's one of the games that my pops will play. He'll say, lay down here and look at the clouds or we'll drive and he'll say, look at the mountains and tell me what you see. And we'll, we'll have to tell the the shapes that we see as we're driving out of the valley. <laughs> so it's pretty neat. Oh, and that goes to something he says kind of later in the book about the hobby, having, yes, having a yes. hobby. Let me see if I can. Um, so people basically, if we did not make this clear enough, what uh, we are doing on the show is just talking about this book. This is book club. You're, <laughs> you're, you're in book club right now. Um, so, here it is. Okay. I'm, can I just, I, we're just going to read to each other sometimes and I'm going yes. to read you this part. Um, the other important thing we could do as individuals in order to enter the experience of genuine rest is simply to stop expecting it to feel good. At least in the first instance, nothing is more alien to the present age than idleness, writes the philosopher, John Gray. Um, how can there be play in a time when nothing has meaning unless it leads to something else? Um, and then he says the discomfort of resting and doing nothing isn't a sign you shouldn't be doing it though. It's a sign that you definitely should. We might seek to incorporate into our daily lives more things that we do for their own sake alone, like you and the playing with the poetry to spend some of our time that is on activities in which the only thing we're trying to get from them is the doing itself. And this is my favorite part. And so in order to be a source of true fulfillment, a good hobby probably should feel a little embarrassing. That's a sign you're doing it for its own sake rather than for some socially sanctioned outcome. It's fine and perhaps preferable to be mediocre at them. So that section, I also highlighted the heck out of because um, the because we share the same brain. We do. Um, because he talks about that book Midlife, and which um, I haven't read. Have but, you read it? I just ordered. No, it, of course. <laughs> so did I. Because when I went back, <laughs> when I went back through the book to highlight it, I, I basically I realized that I was making a Cliff's Notes version of it that I could read the book really quickly for the yes. things that stood out to me before, yes. and then yeah, I I kind of one clicked a bunch of stuff, but um. I did too. When I first heard that part, I mentioned to James, um, I said, you know, um, that's why I don't go down into the basement to play around with paints, because I feel like 
I could be doing so many other things and I have never been a painter. I'm a terrible, terrible visual artist, like embarrassingly so. And I, I don't want anybody to ever see it. But this book says that's a good thing. Guess what? And I signed up for a drawing and a painting class yesterday. There you go. Boom. Are, you should do it too. <laughs> well, I take visual art classes. I take a lot of visual art classes because they, um, because if I talk to writers all the time, writers can, it's kind of like inside baseball. It's a lot of the same stuff, but visual artists talk about it differently, but it's the same thing. So I translate it. I live my life in translation. So I listen to them talk about moving paint around on a canvas and I'm like, got it. That's words in a, in a, on a paragraph. I'm the, I got it. And then I can, but I never really do the art. I just listen. I am also a terrible visual artist, and I've always wanted to do more with it. And this book again, reminded me that, um, especially the doing it for the sake of doing it, there was this, I gave myself a challenge because that's what I do. And I drew every day. Um, I think I did. I think I got to about 185 days and I was doing drawing on the right side of the brain. And I would yeah, post but- a picture of it every day on, um, on Instagram. That's actually how I started in Instagram. Um, and you can go back, like it's the very end of my Instagram feed. You can go back and I really kind of suck. And then you see me getting better as I'm learning. And then on day 182, I was like, Oh no, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I broke the chain, which for me making chains, long chains of days that I've done something is, is not useful because once I break it, I will never do it again. Uh, so I really haven't drawn since then, but I remember the feeling of being so deeply focused on seeing something, which I don't think we do a lot as writers. We are, we are always looking on the, in, in the inner mind. We're not looking at the shape of a bottle and, and, um, to move around in the book, this idea of what we pay attention to is what we give our life to. And when you pay it, I I was doing a lot of faces and I remember I, I would, I would take a photograph of somebody and then draw the face. And I, and I drew Virginia Woolf's face one day. And now when I see that iconic face, I know that face because I paid attention to her and I, I know every, I, I, I I didn't capture it well, but I put attention to it. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is that beautiful Mary Oliver quote that says something like um, adoration begins or, Attention is the Attention. beginning of devotion. Yeah. Yeah. And he Mary also Oliver. says, I know Mary, I'm falling in love with Mary Oliver right now. I've, I've been having a torrid love affair with her and I've never had one before. <laughs> Always been more of a Mace Arton gal, but right now me and Mary Oliver are getting it on. Um, <laughs> but Oliver also says, what you pay attention to will define you. Wait, what you pay attention to will define for you what reality is. So, when, oh, this one, this, this line. So when you pay attention to something you don't especially value, it's not an exaggeration to say that you're paying with your life. Yeah, right? It's that Annie Dillard quote from The Writing Life. Yes. How you spend your day is how you spend your life. Yes. And then to say, he says it later in the book too, about um, like you can doom scroll through social media but that it echoes for so much longer. You lose so much more than the hour because it reverberates, it sets your mood. And then it, it's yes. something that continues to play again and again in your brain. And, yeah. and oftentimes you don't know it. It has, it has changed you in some fundamental way, but you don't know it because 
your attention is making it mean more. Um, uh, Mary Oliver calls this inner urge toward distraction, the intimate interrupter. And then yes. this guy named Greg Kretsch, who I don't know who he is, but he says, one of the puzzling things I have learned is that more often than not, I do not feel like doing most of the things that need doing. I'm not just speaking about cleaning the toilet bowl or doing my tax returns. I'm return I'm referring to those things I genuinely desire to accomplish. And I think that's how we, that's how I will speak for myself. That's how I end up in a Twitter loop or a TikTok loop or oh, yeah. a Netflix loop. I want to be doing other things, but I, but I also, I also don't want to, how do you feel about that? See, I think it comes down to fear for me. It's yeah. a fear thing. And he talks about that in the book as well, that, that you could be doing something that you really want to do. Mm -hmm. And then you have to pick up your phone or you have to, yeah, you, you, you want to be anywhere other yes. than what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Which is the fear. Again, it's a, it's our finitude. It's realizing like, oh my gosh, I could totally screw this up right now. And so the urge to distract, and it's so easy to do it. And I'll tell you, it's not, it's not something that is unique. I know people have talked about this and he talks about it in the book that it's not something that's unique to modern society. And it's not just because of smartphones, because it's just as easy to do in the Valley. Um, we could be, mm. you know, building a goat house and then something, and I think this is really cool. And then as soon as I'm out of it, then I want to go do something else because it's a really good, it's good. And I want to save it or it scares me <laughs> that I might screw it up. And as a kid, uh, yeah. oh, go, go ahead. No, as go a kid, I'll remember what I want to come back to. <laughs> Uh, um, when I was a kid, there was a, I think it was a Franco-American commercial that um, they talked about the spaghetti and the meatballs and, and the meatballs were the best part. Yeah. And so as a kid, I used to save the meatballs because that was the best part. And I wouldn't allow myself to eat the meatball. And in one of one of your sessions, um, I said, it's time to eat the damn meatball. You know, like it's time, it's time to do it and have some fun. And actually one of the, one of the writers in the class sent me stickers that says, eat the meatball. No. So I've got, <laughs> I've got those now. Another place that we are in the same brain. And this is not what everybody feels like. My wife thinks that this is just banana pants when I, when I say this, but I, when I am truly enjoying something, I like to stop. I, too. when I, when I'm in the middle of like the scariest part of a thriller or the most romantic part of a book or something incredible on TV, I'll pause it, walk away. And, and Lala just does not understand that. And it's the, probably the primary reason I don't finish books and I don't finish a lot of books because I'm enjoying them too much. I don't want to save them a little bit longer. Right. Uh, almost all of my books have been started. Yeah, but the best ones have stopped. Yes. Absolutely. And then I forget and I go back and I say, well, I can read it again. But then I get to that same point and I'm like, oh, it's so good. I can't. <laughs> you know who's really good at, at taking, taking on the world, though, and not saving our kids. And this yeah. is something new um, from working in the schools in New York City. The kids weren't savers. The kids were eaters. You know, they, they devoured things. So if they were having fun, they just, they drained it until there was no fun left. Mm. It went hard. If, I don't know where we learn it. I don't know at what point that that scarcity mindset comes into play where we say, I'm good, I, it's too good. Or I'm afraid, and again, in, in 4,000 weeks, I feel like he's saying we pull out because we, we get scared. Linda Berry used to talk, um, talks about this. I'm sure she still does. <clears throat> where when you're reading a book, you say like, you get to, to the end of the book and you go, oh man, don't screw this up. This is really good. And you don't want to finish the book because what if the author screws it up and then they don't the stick whole the thing landing. is wasted? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, 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 um, oh, I've had like 17, the 17 thoughts about this. Um, I, I want to kind of touch the punchline of the book and it relates to our books that are not finished. Um, and I think it's probably the hardest thing to talk about is this deep realization that happens while reading this book, or it could happen at any other number of places. Um, but this realization that, oh, I can't do all the things and that's okay. That's actually the thing that makes it okay. Um, (laughs) Talk me through this. Like the beauty, the beauty of settling, right? Because you have to settle on whatever it is that you choose. And I can't find the paragraph. I have it marked, but I don't want to make a lot of noise on this podcast. (laughs) Is it the settling one? Because I probably have it typed out. It's the part where he talks about, um, like, I want to be a dad and I want to be a great businessman and I want to be a writer and I want to train for meditation or I want to train for marathons and go on meditation retreats. And it's all the things which are exactly the same things that I want to do. And he says, the minute I give any attention to one, then I am taking attention away from other things. And then he brings it up again. And that's been the criticism. The only criticism I've read about this book is that he hits things over and over again. But I'm so, I'm the type of person who- I like that. Me too. Because he he says it and then he'll bring it back and I'm like, oh yeah, right. And then he'll bring it back. Oh yeah, that too. And I needed it because I already forgot it and now I'm learning more about it. So there's this word that he uses a lot that I don't actually know how to say, finitude or finitude. Okay, I listened to it and I'm imagining he's finitude. I couldn't find it today, but I did look it up and Merriam-Webster's dictionary says finitude. Okay, so it might be a British-American kind of thing. Yes. So this idea of finitude is that there is um, an 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 end. Basically, there's there's a there's a limitation on us. And um, I'm going to read this quote from it that says, uh, "The exhilaration that sometimes arises when you finally grasp this truth about finitude has been called the joy of missing out." by way of a deliberate contrast with the idea of fear of missing out. It is the thrilling recognition that you wouldn't even really want to be able to do everything since if you didn't have to decide what to miss out on, your choices couldn't truly mean anything. In this state of mind, you can embrace the fact that you're foregoing certain pleasures or neglecting certain obligations because whatever you've decided to do instead, earn money to support your family, write a novel, bathe the toddler, pause on a hiking trail, is how you've chosen to spend a portion of time that you never had any right to expect. How beautiful is that? It's incredible. And in terms of like romantic partners, right? Because yeah. we have the the idea of settling is something that we're taught. And at least when I was growing up, it was kind of like, well, you don't want to settle. You want to have the best of everything. You want You want to go for the best. But then... How do you know? And I remember saying to my parents, how did you know that you guys were meant to be together? And they said, well, we just know. Well, okay, so now I'm in my mid-20s and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, do I, what if the person's not in know? this country? Yeah, right. what if they're What if they're somewhere else in the world? What if I have a stomachache um, when I meet them? I don't yeah. know. I'm going to be thinking or, about my stomach. Or just a really good <laughs> slice of pizza and I don't look up. So, yeah, the 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 beauty of committing, not only settling, but and I can't think of the person's name that he references, but um, 
that it's important to like not only settle but settle hard like yes. have a child with a person or buy a house with a person or get married with a person because now you're really joined and now you'll really invest in it whereas if you always have an out because yes. we're we're reluctant to burn bridges right we always want to think well i could go and find someone else imagine how many imagine how many marriages never would have lasted if people didn't say well i made a vow let's try to stick it out and, and they have Good. Just the beauty of of settling in then and saying like, wow, there are parts of you that drive me crazy, but there are parts of you that drive me crazy in the best ways too. And I just love that. And you've been married like, a long time like I have. And that yeah. is true on a daily basis. I want to kill her. And <laughs> there's also nobody I want to go through this life with, like I want right. to go through with her, right. you know? Um, right. There... Something that you said. Sorry, my brain is so full and excited about this. Um, this oh, I was going to say that they have actually proven that people are happier when they make that big all-in gesture. Um, and there's relief about it. Like for me, I was super anxious and super miserable, very miserable for months and months and months while we were getting ready to go to New Zealand. So we decided in quotation marks in February, but I don't think I'd really decided to move to New Zealand until like the house was sold and we didn't have a home to live anymore. And in those, those months, like we could have changed our minds at any time. Once we had the house sold, once we have the tickets, once we have just two suitcases left each, there was no more deciding and the fear dropped away and it just moved to excitement. I was settling. I was settling for this idea that I can't live in America and New Zealand. I have picked one and now I'm going to go do it. I think settling gets a bum rap, but if you think about yeah. it, if you're watching, if you have a fishbowl and you you um, spin the gravel around in the fishbowl, then it's it's turbulent yeah. and it's a mess, and you want it to settle. You want to you want it to ground, right? So and that's exactly the thing we use in meditation too, right? When we're thinking about our minds and letting the mind settle and clarify. Exactly. <gasps> There's so something could be Oliver a... didn't put in the book <laughs> that he could have, and we Drop thought of the pebble. There you go. See, we need to have coffee with him. I've written to him and said, like, I think we're related, but I'm not sure. And I don't know why that he didn't write me back. I think I probably scared him. I know. You know what? No, because I heard him on a podcast recently and he said that he's gotten so much great email from this book. And yeah. he was he was on on the on the podcast. It was a the Jen Loudon podcast. And um and he said, and I just can't get back to everybody. And I have accepted that this is not something that I can do. This is, these are the things that I am choosing to drop. So um, for people who haven't read the book, uh, I want to um, pick up a couple of pointers that he has here uh, that I'm going to, that I'm going to come to as I, as I skim through here. Uh, I can't, I can't find them right now. So we're just going to talk about it. It is embracing the fact that you are going to drop balls. And the yeah. idea is to pick the things that you're going to drop. Um, for me, I, I also like Oliver, I pick email a lot. You know that you're, you're always um, faced with getting past my email. My email <laughs> block. You are permanently whitelisted by but now, by the way, so you can always get in. Your email <laughs> is whitelisted, but that's one of those things that I'm never going to be good and on top of, and I'm able to let go. Um, what about you? What are things that you have told yourself you're willing to drop in order to do the important things? Oh, gosh. I know. Every, everything, kind of, because yeah. it until I was a parent, 
I was able to be more autonomous, right? James and I have been together for a million years, but we we were grown up so we could move, you know, as as independent and sovereign beings. And then suddenly there was somebody <laughs> that was literally attached. And so yeah. that meant that I had to give up a lot of things. And that was frustrating and it still is frustrating at times because I have memories, you know, of being able to move, yeah. move freely. But um I I have accepted the fact that like my days are no longer my own and like it's like writing you, you can have a million ideas to play with but when you settle and you say I'm going to write this one how terrifying that is and how immediately all the other ideas become so seductive and they're all oh calling God, and saying so sexy. write me come yeah. to me yeah, 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 I'll, yeah. I'll give you a bestseller come this way <laughs> and you know the beauty of of saying like okay I said I would write this. I will, I will, and I, I, I drop a lot. I have to drop a lot. And I'm getting better at leaving notes for myself, but I also know that those are breadcrumbs, you know, and the crows are going to come and eat them, and I'm going to be okay with that. That's, that's huge, is that I'm always trying to capture everything perfectly. Um, I don't know. How, how much of a perfectionist are you? I would, before reading this book? Yeah, I was, yeah, before really problematically so um and hyper anxious which is why this book yes, was such a game changer yeah. because it was like forget it you're not you're not perfect and so the anxiety all your worry you're not perfect you don't yeah. have to be you cannot be um they, they talk about um this this uh basic uh, oh, it's the second order change. I don't know if this really hit you as hard as it did me, um, but he talks a little bit about AA and recovery. Uh, can I can I read out loud to you again? Totally, this part here? please. Um, the so he's talking about AA and, and alcoholic recovery. The futility of this situation, in which the addict's efforts to regain control send him spiraling further out of control, which is the basis of the paradoxical sounding insight for which AA has become famous: that you can't truly hope to beat alcohol until you give up all hope of beating alcohol. Um, likewise, Brown argues, he's talking about somebody else. We addicts to speed, speed and doing all the things and getting all the things right must crash to earth. We have to give up. You surrender to the reality that things just take the time they take and that you can't quiet your anxieties by working faster because it isn't within your power to force reality's pace as much as you feel your need to. And because the faster you go, the faster you'll feel you need to go. If you can let those fantasies crumble, Brown's client discovered, something unexpected happens analogous to the alcoholic giving up his unrealistic craving for control in exchange for the gritty down to earth reality confronting experience of recovery. And here it is. Psychotherapists call it a second order change, meaning that it is not an incremental improvement, but a change in perspective that reframes everything. When everything. you finally face everything, when you finally face the truth that you can't dictate how fast things go, you stop trying to outrun your anxiety and your anxiety is transformed. And I'm actually right now, like experiencing quite a bit of emotion and I might well up, but, um, <laughs> yes. but like, but yeah, because like when I, just, when I realized that I was an alcoholic, I've often told this story, but, um, I had journaled for so long about how I couldn't be an alcoholic so long. And then one day I wrote in my journal, I am an alcoholic. And it was such, it was one of the biggest reliefs of my life because I had finally named it. I couldn't control alcohol anymore. And I was in AA four hours later and I haven't had a drop since almost four years. And it was a momentary shift. It was a, sh it was a second order change. It happened all at once. And I feel like with this book and thanks to you, 
I had the second order change that I will never finish my to-do list. I have been feeling like a failure my entire adult life because my to-do list is never done. And someday I will not only figure out how to write the perfect to-do list, but I will also, he mentions, you know, get up and do the seven things that highly successful people do before breakfast. I will have everything done <laughs> and, and, and then I will have a perfect day. And all the days that I don't do that, I'm still a failure. And when you realize you can't do it, you're no longer a failure. You're just a fucking human. Exactly. You know, and I think that's what this whole book is about. This whole book, and yeah. it sounds scary. The weird, it does. The weird it does. thing is, yeah. <laughs> when I got the, I read his blog post and I was very excited and I bought the book and then I thought, you know what, because I'm a productivity geek and I was walking on the treadmill, I thought, I really, I'll listen to it while I walk. Yeah. Not yeah. because I was trying to do two things at once, but because I just wanted his voice in my, in my yeah. ear. And um, I remember be walking on the treadmill and thinking, this is everything. This is, he's talking directly to me. Cut to, I listened to a snip of it earlier today and I thought, wow, this is a terrifying book because he starts out in the beginning and he's like, you're going to die. And all the things <laughs> that you want to do, you're not going to do. And I thought I was in a really good place to hear this because yeah. it really spoke to me. And I'm sure there are people that could pick this book up and say, this is really a, a pessimistic view, but it's not. It's really, I mean, I hear Zen teachers yeah. talk about it now, but I definitely on Molokai, when we talk with the, the kupuna, the, the elders on the island, they talk about things in a very pragmatic way, like it just doesn't work. You are, you're, and when you can let go of all of the stuff that you don't, that you think you're hiding, which you're not hiding, right. you're just spinning around in circles and think that you, you're doing smoke and mirrors, but you're not. You're still yeah. going through life one step at a time. You're still doing some things and letting some things fall apart. You're still um, acing some things and, and totally mucking up other things. And and it, it, that's part of it. You know, we're, we're people and, and we're here for a really short time. It would be cool if you could let go and have a little bit of fun while you're here too. And face, face that, if not squarely, I don't know if anybody can ever face really squarely the, 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 the fear that comes when thinking about mortality or especially, you know, other people that we love their mortality, but there is that, um, that it, there is that availability to understand it as a reality. And, um, he, he called it three different things. He, he pulled out three things that people call it. It's the bright sadness Yes, that uh, Richard War calls it the stubborn gladness. Uh, the poet Jack Gilbert says that, or sober joy. The Heidegger scholar Bruce Ballard and I really uh, and or or you could just finally count. You could call it finally encountering real life, and I think that that's that's what I love is that it is so joyful to to. And it, it sounds grandiose, doesn't it? I mean, I sound like an asshole, but I'm like, well, I <laughs> thought I was going to finally, you know, be perfect. I was going to get it all down. I'm 49 years old. I must be close. Must be real close to, to perfection. And, you know, my wife would tell me, I mean, she, my wife is one of those accidental Buddhists. And the whole time I've been reading this book, she's like, yeah, you didn't know that. That's, you know, you <laughs> I was like, yes, I can, I can do everything. And I will live everywhere in New Zealand in order to pick the perfect place. And, um, right. Yeah. Right. You are not alone, obviously, because this book is an international yeah. bestseller. So yeah. he's speaking to all of us who yeah. have, I'm guessing that it comes from, I'm guessing that it comes from some kind of early childhood thing. Although they say that, mm. that we, you know, inherit D, uh, the, the trauma in the DNA as well, but through some early ch childhood thing where you've got to, 
you know, that performative quality, you've got to be, you've got to be perfect. That Alanis yeah. Morissette song where, you know, try a little harder and, and, you yeah. know, be a good girl, just measure up and all that stuff. I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, wow, someone else knows what, what this feels like. And not only did Alanis Morissette get it, but apparently people all around the world get it because we're all buying this book and saying, thank you, Oliver Berkman, for reminding us, like, we can't do it all. And that's actually really good. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me so happy just to sit on the porch with a cup of tea and watch what is becoming a normal view to me. It'll never be something I don't think it'll ever be something I don't, I'm not impressed with and love, but I don't have to be figuring out what else I could be doing in that moment. I can just, I can look at the sky for a second. Right. You know? <sighs> he does that else? whole, yeah. Uh, the section with midlife, and then it goes into the Rod Stewart, who is a, a mini miniature train aficionado, and Rod Stewart like traveled around and in true rock star. Awesome. There are going to be people like listening who are going to be like, I think he just said that Rod Stewart is a train. train. <laughs> I don't think I know. Okay, go on. That's that is what Jason said. Yes. In, in true rock star style, he had like a second hotel room for his train set that he did and he didn't he says like he paid someone else to do the fit the fiddly electrical wiring because rod couldn't do the wiring but to pursue an activity in which you have no hope of becoming exceptional is to put aside forever the anxious need to use time well the part that you were talking about and like how beautiful it is just just to do something um and i mentioned to james i said there's this woman and she bought land in costa rica to go surfing he said i know her she wrote a book about it. She's a publisher. And I said, yes. And he said, it's Karen Rinaldi. And I said, it is. I couldn't believe that he knew that he knew from the from the oh description. He said, Jason, that's a really well-known story that like she says, you've got to you've got to let go and you've got to be willing to suck at at something because that's part of the process. That's how you learn. As a kid, we moved every year growing up. I know you moved a lot as well. Yeah, yeah, we um, and when you move, you're constantly um you're, you have to, if you want to survive, one of the lessons that I learned was to step back and observe and not and jump in. in. at all costs. Yeah, because otherwise so you're you dead. Can, yeah, you're dead. You're doomed. And I was the worst little nerd of a kid. Like I just buck teeth and braces and acne. Me too. Literally bifocals. Me um, too. At six. In eighth grade. Six. Oh. Okay, I had him even younger. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah. So, so not it only was are essential we, to be kind of perfect, right? We yeah, were trying to have perfect. to, you have you, you, and don't let them see you falter because that will yeah. be the, that'll be the one thing that they pick to target. Yeah. And how, what a shame that is, because how can you learn something if you can't progress through it? How can you learn something if you can't be really bad in the beginning? And I didn't learn that early on. And you know, that that is what it is. I'm 49 too. And that I can't go back and change that. I have a four year old and I watch him go through things. And I think, wow, he's really bad at that. But he's (laughs) like learning how to do it. My nephew, for example, is a brilliant basketball player. And if you and he does have a natural, he's 16, I think. Gosh, I hope I'm saying that right. 16. Um, he, if you ask people, is he a natural athlete? Everybody would say, oh, yes, he is. And he has a natural grace on the court. Like he's, he's a very agile person. But they never saw the fact that like he shoots 
thousands and thousands and yeah. thousands of baskets and he doesn't make most of them. And so, but he loves the process of it. And then when it comes time for him to shine, he can do it because he's put in the work because he's been really bad. And what if we use some of our 4,000 weeks to be really bad and then choose something subtle and let let it come to a, a a place of calm where we can be really bad and and progress through that, you know, and and maybe get good, maybe not, because it doesn't really matter. There's a whole chapter about um our cosmic insignificance. Yeah. And I thought, wow, why do I feel good after I'm reading this? I love but that. It, it was delicious, right? To think yes. we're here for a blink of an eye. Every I think, you know. Butterfly's wings can set off a tsunami. If I push the the grocery cart in the wrong place, what if somebody hits it and then it's the car wreck or whatever? It ruins their lives forever. Yeah, yeah. Jason, you're not that important. Dude, relax. I also really love that point where he points out where you have been in control of almost nothing your whole life. The reason that I'm here is because my dad met my mom in Samoa because she had a record collection. And the reason I'm in New Zealand is that my mom was born a New Zealander. I have nothing to do with these facts. Um, I basically have, I have nothing to do with how I got here. And that is so relaxing to me, but something you just said, just reminded me of something I completely forgot, which is, this is a podcast for writers. Um, so I'm going to bring it back around to writing for a second and how important that, that willingness to suck for a while and to get, and he talks about this in the book, the getting comfortable with the discomfort. And that's what we're talking about right now is getting comfortable with the discomfort that we can't do everything, that we can't be everything. We never will be. We don't have a chance in hell. Um, So therefore get comfortable with it and lean into it. And there's this, um, there's this quote from the book, uh, this future focused attitude. And this is something I see a lot in people who want to write, which is why I'm, I'm saying it. This future focused attitude often takes the form of what I once heard described as the when I finally mind, yes. as in when I finally get my workload under control, when I finally get my candidate elected, when I finally find the romantic partner, when I sort out my psychological issues, then I can relax and the life I was always meant to be living can begin. The person when I finally mired, publish. When I finally get published, I'll finally feel like a real writer. When I finally get an agent, um, uh, the person mired in this mentality believes that the reason she doesn't feel fulfilled and happy is that she hasn't yet managed to accomplish certain specific things like getting published or finishing a book. When she does show, she imagines she'll feel in charge of her life and be the master of her time. Yet in the fact, sorry, yet in fact, the way she's attempting to achieve that sense of security means she'll never feel fulfilled because she's treating the present solely as a path to some superior future state. And so the present moment won't ever feel satisfying in itself. Because she doesn't know how to stand in the present. It's always just that stepping stone as she's looking out instead of because when she does finally reach something, she's still looking further out. The next thing will be there. And when she's the Parkinson's law, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when she sits down at the desk to write, she's writing for the future instead of truly just like sucking in the in the in the present, like writing a few crappy sentences and and figuring out what to do with them later. Um, but I've run into those people at uh, especially at writing conferences and conventions. People will you know come up to you as an author and say, "Well, you know, when I'm when I retire, I'm going to write that book. When I retire, I'm going to have a lot of time to write that book." Or you know, when my kid's out of the house. It never happens. There's never going to be a better time than now. We have we have no command over the next 10 minutes. We're we're lucky exactly. to get it. Exactly. So, it was, how, it was it, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I want to hear what you say. 
It was the passage that you were talking about. Um, it's the Simone de Beauvoir um, passage about where she says, I am, a, I am the sum of all of these things that I have yes. had no control over. And there will be no, like she never would have met Sartre and she never would have done this and had, had or what if she had been somewhere else and her, she broke her ankle or something. Eating the I'm, pizza. I'm yeah. 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 What if I didn't look up at exactly that moment? What yeah. if, and we are the results of these beautiful um, accidents or fate or however it is that you choose to look at it. And we're not in control, even no matter how you look at it. If you say it's an accident or you say that it's predestined, you're not in control. So that it absolves you of that responsibility of having to know absolutely everything about everything so that you can be everything to everybody. And it, it, it all kind of goes away. It goes away in that moment of realization. And I will say the moment of realization is life-changing. And then I immediately forget it. And next week I'll be back to stressing yes. about everything. Yes. So let's talk about future steps. Okay. Um, what? I, I don't have any answers to these the questions that I'm only forming now. Uh, how, do, how do you want to live your life differently because of this book? So this book, because I was working on a middle grade novel, spoke to me as, a, as I was looking at that. And I thought, well, this book, I've never written a book before. I've, I've written pieces, but I've never written an entire thing before all the way through. So let me see what that feels like. And it was okay. Like I survived it and it was really wonky and wobbly. <clears throat> and then I was able to say, um, well, let's see how I revise it. And that was again, more learning process. And then let's see how to weave it together, which I was a terrible mess at. And then I started to figure out how my brain worked through that. And that was really exciting. So I feel like I've been living this book for the last year, um, even though I really only came to the book in September, mm -hmm. but I've been living this process going, okay, and now not that I'm not that I'm great, but I can sit down and be like, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens if I just engage. I was taking a workshop with a um, with a poet and and somebody, it was a generative workshop and somebody said, I never expected to write that. And the, the poet who was facilitating it said, I know that's the whole part of creativity. Like you don't know until you begin. Nothing happens until you begin, which is true of everything. So in terms of like- as a control freak, we feel like we can plan what I will do later creatively today. You totally. Can't do that. You can't. Totally. I know exactly how this is going to work, and it's beautiful, and I've already got it all in my head. Yeah. But or the, the opposite, where I don't, I can't do the work because I don't know how it's going to go yet. Again, it's the generative creative process. We don't know. You can't know until you sit down. And right. Screw around with it. Or like Ann Patchett says in the getaway car, like, you know, she thinks about a story forever and it's this beautiful butterfly that she's cut from the cathedral window and then she pins it to the page and drives over it with her SUV and kills it. Because like you murder, you murder, <laughs> it won't be because, because things happen. It's a domino, you know, one domino hits the next. And that's been really, um, that's been really wonderful to hear him read, hear him read his words to me and then to read them and then to revisit them, knowing that we were gonna talk this week to go through the book again and go like, oh my gosh, I so needed this right now. <laughs> and to, 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 to bust through some highlighters, you know, and, and go crazy with it, it was, it was fabulous. I'm gonna to try to remind myself to go back and look at these notes at some point. One, I think the thing that I'm taking away the most from this book is something that I was already stewing on. Um, 
but it is the fact that my list making, which really pleases me, um, just needs to loosen up. So, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast and I may have mentioned it to you. Uh, but again, this happened before I found the book, but the book cemented, um, my dedication in doing this practice. I have a Google sheet. Um, actually my Google sheet is called some ideal shit because that's what I came up with, but, um, <laughs> you know, I could probably come up with a better idea, but I looked and he, and he mentioned exactly this. Um, can't remember who it was that was doing this, but look at your life for what you want and then prioritize it that way. Basically, you know, giving up on the lawn looking good because I do want to spend time with my book for 30 minutes a day, um, kind of thing. So putting that all on a list. And so at the top of my list, I have connection as my number one, how do I connect every day? And I give myself points for it. And I give myself a hundred points for all of these things that are on my list. And one of the hundred points is gratitude. I have another Google sheet called, have you ever heard of homework for life? Yes. Matthew I Dix. love homework for life. Yes, I do it. Yeah. I've been doing it since January. So now I have a whole, almost a whole year. And what it is, I just have a Google sheet and every, every day I sit down and I, I remember what happened the day before with gratitude and I write down the good things. And some days there's nothing and I skip that day. Um, but most days I can come up with the toast tasted good. And, and if I do that, if I spend 12 seconds doing that, I get a hundred points. Um, in time affluence, which is something that really leads to my happiness, uh, I get a hundred points if I spend thirty minutes a day in my workday reading. I almost never get that. I, I get a I get a zero for that every day. But every day, I am reminded that that's what I want to do. I also get a hundred points if I waste time in any way, shape, or form. Um, so when Ooh, I sit that's out, good. isn't it good? That's waste a good time. one. Not just rest, not relax, but waste time. And sometimes I'll be like, well, I did. I looked at, I looked at TikTok for 20 minutes. That was a waste of time. Good, good job. Me a hundred points. Um, so, and then I've got at the very, very bottom is work. And those are easy to fill in. Did I clear Slack? Did I clear email? Did I, um, spend two hours on my own writing? Did I spend one hour on another grind project? Did I, did I teach today? Those get hundreds easily. Um, but that is, oh, and I wanted to say for listeners, um, if anybody wants to look at that Google spreadsheet, I put a shareable link to it and it's at rachelheron.com, uh, meaningful because some ideal shit actually means to me, what is a meaningful life look like if I'm looking at it at a daily basis with an eye toward what is important to me? And number one, I it's connection. That. Number two, it's health. Number three, it's uh, time affluence. And number four, it's work. And always in my life up until now, work has been number one. That's so. really beautiful. That's in the end. He talks about the prioritizing with um, Warren Buffett and saying like, What's your, he was That's in this plane and talking to the yeah. pilot and do 25 things and then take yes. the take the top five and get rid of everything else. And Elizabeth Gilbert says something like, it's so hard to say no, not because it's things that you don't want to do, but it's the things that you do want to do. And so you have yeah. to learn how to say no to really prioritize the things that you love. And then the Japanese concept of, I think it's Hanpan, where you, um, you can only have three things going at a time and you move. Kanban, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kanban, that's it. Yeah. And then... Um, and then at the end of the book, he says, it's a series of lists and you move things from one list to another. I, and gonna, I had forgotten that one until I gave it the second read, the open list and the closed list. And yeah. right now I have a list of like work things and I have a list of life things, you know, lots of paperwork and stuff to do here. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to have a closed list, which I'm just not worried about. And as soon as I clear something off the open list, I'm going to, I'm going to move another thing over to the open list from the closed list. And I really like calling them that. 
because closed is very regimented to me. Don't worry about it, Rachel. It's closed. You're good. Ignore. So I am going to try that one. I actually wrote beside that gold stars because I was thinking of you and your gold stars. I love um, my gold stars. So yeah, I wrote I wrote gold stars beside that because I thought, oh, she'll understand that. That's her yep. gold stars moment. And he encourages having the done list, which I call yeah. the ta-da list from, from, a, a, from a friend and student gave that to us. And, and actually I'll show you in my, um, in my journal, usually I have like, this is my ta-da list on this page. On the next page, I've been hiding my to-do list. I can't see it unless I flip the page to go to it. Lowering stress. Are you doing there's the same gold thing? Stars. Yes, no, but the this gold is, stars. Yes, there's yes, the gold yes. stars for you. And I was thinking of, of Cheryl and gold stars. Yes. Yep. Jason, this has been wonderful. I can't tell you how fun I, when I read this book, when I heard it, and then when I read it immediately, I was like, oh my gosh, this is Rachel. Because I glommed onto the fact that I knew that you were a productivity geek as well. And that he, I mean, he was paid to do it. And now he's the one who eschews it and says, you know what? It's not really, it's not going to happen. He so, literally was paid to do a column for The Guardian for years, right? Yeah. Years and then they it. celebrated his book, <laughs> which I love too. <laughs> I love that they're cheering him on for saying, I don't know about this. But I mean, it's, it's real evolution when you look at it that way, that he says, all of these tricks are just to keep you hyped. And it's yes. just to play with somebody's mind who is autumn who's already tuned to that frequency of like if i yes. just keep moving if i just keep dancing nobody's gonna see that i'm falling down and I'm finally gonna get it right someday yeah. yeah yeah which i mean literally i did that in a show i couldn't time step so i i just moved my feet really fast and hoped that nobody would see that i was butchering i would tap buy dancing. it i would buy it <laughs> if i saw it I would love to close. If you don't mind, I'm going to just read the last paragraph of the book because I think yes. it's, really, it's really good. It's a, it's a short one. The average human lifespan is absurdly, terrifyingly, insultingly short, but that isn't a reason for unremitting despair or for living in an anxiety-fueled panic about making the most of your limited time, which is what I had always been doing. It's a cause for relief. You get to give up on something that was always impossible. The quest to become the optimized, infinitely capable, emotionally invincible, fully independent you're officially person you're officially supposed to be. Then you get to roll up your sleeves and start work on what's gloriously possible instead. Right? The beautiful mess of it all. Yeah. What is gloriously possible right now, today, with the energy level that I have and the health that I have and the what I have in the house and who I have in the house. Um, yeah. What Maybe. if it was that? I know. <laughs> I think we just became a full Buddhist enlightened. I mean, I maybe think for so. like a second. A second I'm going to have to rewatch this and listen to this again so that I can remember, because I'm sure by the time I go upstairs, I'm going to forget it. That's it. I, I can bet my last two nickels on that one. We'll send it to Oliver. Maybe he'll listen. And he, <laughs> Oliver, you don't have to email back if you listen to this. Um, I just want to say really seriously, thank you from with all my heart for changing my life with this book. For, sending, uh, for knowing I needed you. it. Well, no. if I need it, I figure you need it too. And it's, I mean, what if you're have if I'm having fun with something, who better to share it with than a friend, right? Exactly. Thank you, Jason. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? 
You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. <laughs>